You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the O2 Podcast. Uh, tonight, we have Andrew and Paul uh, leading up here to our the start of our Arrow discussion with Dr. Ed Ashby. Uh, this is going to be a multi-part series, we'll call it. And I'm not even sure, Paul, if it's going to be three or four yet, but we are uh, we spent a lot of time on the, the, the old phone with Dr. Ashby. So we're going to try to get you guys as much of that information as possible. But Paul, what are you up to, man? Oh, man, I am in I am in full island mode right now. Island living Paul. it up. I am 400 yards away from the Atl- the Atlantic Ocean. Got a suntan. I got a beer. I'm living it up, man. Having a great time down here and good old Hilton Head. So, good. yeah, love it. I actually got I got freaking vaporized by a jellyfish today while I was swimming. Was it did, did first you, time for that? Did you have your uh, fog proof? rangefinder that vaporizes fog with you um i didn't i did not maybe i would have seen it better but no i, I did not i will for, <laughs> i will forever think of that whenever i hear the term vaporize again so yeah uh, absolutely jellyfish huh? that's a that's no bueno uh, my kids figured out one day that I, I guess you're supposed to pee on yourself if you get stung by a jellyfish so they walked around and told everybody about that and uh <laughs> my wife did not find that too entertaining but they thought it was hilarious uh, kids. yeah no um no peeing on my on my elbow. Yeah, it got me like forearm, elbow. Oh, it got me good. <laughs> oh, the thought of that's kind of funny. Um, well, good, good for you, Paul. Enjoy enjoy your time down there. Are you doing any uh, deep sea fishing? You know, I've 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 looked for some charters. I found a couple. So I mean, it would be just me, and you know, it's a couple hundred bucks to go to go out. So I found like a kayaking charter that was it was like 135 bucks they take you back in the the intercoastal waterway and you fish for for redfish and uh i don't know i'm i'm, I'm gonna try to i'm gonna try to get out and do that at some point this week so keeping keeping an eye on that man i, I would love to get out and do I, some do some fishing so. i think i think you should treat yourself to a six hour 
charter by yourself. Just 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 five six hundred bucks, and they go out and just catch as many redfish or yeah, whatever the hell. Throw six that. lines in or whatever is legal, and you know, just enjoy the time, the peace and quiet, right? That's it, man. I I I was fortunate enough to do a little uh, little walleye fishing up on Lake Erie, man. had a had a good time. My buddy Don invited me up and met some awesome people, Michael and and Jeff and captain jason you know like this i feel like the sign of a good charter captain is one they they put you on fish but two the one-liners and puns and personal attacks that the charter captains have the dad jokes they are probably used a million times dad jokes (laughs) i mean this guy captain jason his personal attacks were elite and they were hilarious i mean this guy roasted my ass i so the first walleye i catch like i bend over to like unhook this thing and it spines me right it's like the tiny little poke so i turn it into this giant baby and so he walks up and he's like hey what, what was your podcast called again how to how to handle walleye like a man and i'm like <laughs> oh dude you got me good i'm gonna take that one <laughs> burn buddy burn yeah so the rest of them i caught i i handled them not like a child but uh yeah it was it was fun that was good though. but up, it was up, it was good man up on the lake yeah poor clinton took out uh took out a poor clinton classic while classic I, while I cap all the world that's it man caught uh cut a cut a massive smallmouth. i got two huge freaking catfish man i mean they put on the, the one of them wore my ass out i mean my arm was dead reeling this thing in so it was great it was such a good time good and we'll be up there but, again yeah. here in what like a month we're gonna go up with the guys from go wild so that'll be good yeah that will be good try to f- put some more fish in the freezer before uh, yep that's it man everything's said and done so um yeah. what else is going on anything uh else in your neck of the woods Mm, you know nothing 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 too crazy man i'm just getting settled into to work i mean we got another you know big big push at the turkey federation getting you know getting new members and getting you know getting money rolling in there's a lot of like really neat research projects that are going on um in ohio and some of the surrounding states that that we're we're trying to get funded and, and get a lot of movement on so i'm just i'm just i'm enjoying my week here and then i mean dude small game September first, that's barreling down on us. It's coming. Barrel, I mean, we're mid July, so it's coming. And if you so choose, uh, September tenth, archery up in those CWD zones opens up. So I, I mean, you might be able to, to with the first time in I don't know how long decades, you tie a take a velvet buck in Ohio if you're so if you're fortunate. So without using your car. Uh, using your car yeah that's it man so looking forward to it gotta get up in that tethered saddle get uh get comfortable with that and uh, i'm ready man yes I'm ready for him all right so let's see here we cut you covered a lot of things there that brought things by mind uh the first thing talking about turkeys okay i saw a little graph the other day that how the uh, dnr and the wildlife uses uh pult and turkey observations and there were some good spikes in the in the graph recently so that's a, that's a positive um you're talking about september and things coming around soon well paul um let's see my birthday was a little over a week ago and for my 36th birthday i've got uh what appears to be another torn meniscus this time in my other knee <clears throat> so mm. Mm. my september uh, i had the appointment 
today with the doctor and I basically told him I want this thing expedited and if you can cut me open tomorrow we're all in um unfor- <laughs> unfor- don't even take an MRI just get in there yeah it's screwed up just go just go find it when you get in there um so I had my other one done in December and uh this is the sign of getting old but um yeah, I can't have it done tomorrow because I'm not a professional athlete. I hustle grass seed for a living, and uh, so I have to wait like the rest of uh, the peasants of the world. So I'm hoping to get it done there late August, early September, get a pretty good quick recovery, and I can get out for opening day, maybe. Oh, man. Don't tell you are me. pushing it. Don't tell my wife, but uh, at – we're going to get that thing taken care of. Last time I waited until after hunting season, but uh, this time I'm not. And I was sitting in the the room today talking to the doctor and, and, you know, shout out Dr. Commissar. You're the man. You made my first knee feel good. So I have faith in you for the second one. But the guy doesn't, you know, I always joke with him that I'm like, we have to get this fixed so I can go hunt deer and pull things out of the woods and climb trees. And I, I don't know. He doesn't seem like the type that does that. But good on him, man. He had a great conversation with me today about how, asked me if I went turkey hunting in the spring and how he had heard that the turkey numbers were way down. And he asked me, is it true that a wet spring can affect turkey harvest? I'm like, whoa, yes. Congrats. Yeah, Yeah, you're the man, Dr. Rod. Like, uh, so I'm pretty sure he doesn't listen, but uh, there are. It was in the dispatch. Hey. And thank you to the dispatch for sharing some of those yeah. numbers to the uh, people that perhaps don't hunt. But he care. I mean, he had enough uh, yeah. information that stuck with him that he remembered, right? So, man, that's awesome. Yeah, the dispatch had a really nice write up uh, just a week or so ago about you know, everything that we talked about on the show before. You know, with Mark Wiley and and uh, yeah, interesting stuff. Good, good stuff. If you see a poult or a hen with poults. You can report it on the Ohio Hunt Fish app, or there's a website you can do it. It's very, very important that everyone that sees bolts reports those. I mean, that's how that's how Mark and his staff are going to be able to really get a good handle on um, poult survival rate and and get back to that two bird limit. And we we just have to see the the bounce back. So, yeah, and it sounds it kind of it sounds silly. I mean, to a certain extent that. We're going to have all these people, whatever. But you have to remember, Mark has two eyes, and we have 300,000 hunters in Ohio. That makes 600,000 eyes that can see things way better than he can. So, um, it, it, you guys, if, if you get that opportunity and you see something, you know, share it back to those guys because they're working hard to help that population continue to grow and, and be stable in the long run. Yep. Yeah, that's right. So. That's right. Uh, the other Ohio news, Andrew, yes. uh, the hunts. We got the lottery hunts that that, uh, that you can apply for. Open July first. It runs until uh, July thirty first. It's like three to five dollars per hunt um, that you are looking looking at. There's duck, deer, small game, doves, uh, all sorts of really neat, you know, really neat uh, opportunities for hunters in the state that we don't, you know, we don't normally get to to take in so i know i applied for a couple of duck ones waterfowl hunts that uh oh man i'd be excited so yeah oh, speaking of waterfowl big day this week big July day first light 19th yeah 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 so first lights are up and out there they're, they're july or on july 19th their waterfowl line um paul they've had some of it out 
kind of to see what what's going to be there. Uh, what are your first thoughts? You thinking? I think Typha is the name of the Typha. Yeah, I really, I really like the pattern. I was reading about it on their website. They wanted to find something that blends in and all of the waterfowl um, environments or habitats that you know someone might hunt at any given time in one season. And I mean, just in, just in Ohio, you know, we've got flooded timber, we've got marshes, we've got open fields. Uh, I mean, it's really they they did they did a really nice job with that pattern. I really like it. Um, I got to wrap my mind around what, uh, what I want to get. But the one thing that I really like, I need to get a few, I need to get a different size, but, um, like the mid layers, you know, when you layer up under insulated waders. Yeah. Yeah. It's some really, I know the one piece of first light, the catalyst thing that I got, the thing is like, it's skin tight's the wrong word, but it's very form fitting. It's very comfortable. It moves really well. I really like that. So I like getting too bulky under my, um, under my waders. So I think that's going to save, save some space there so looking yeah. forward to that so we'll we'll get somebody from first light on to talk a little bit more about this line and i told my wife we were sitting there at the campfire and i'm i was telling her i'm like you just be really happy i'm not a big waterfowl hunter because there's some nice pieces of equipment in there and it's not even just all clothes i was really they kind of stepped outside of their their normal um range here with getting uh they did some of the, the tangle free duck straps they got stuff for the dog you got gun cases you've got dog vests dog crates blinds uh, chairs what else was in this it's a lot of stuff and there's a you know as a gear gear junkie there, there's a lot of stuff that looks really cool so uh, yeah for sure backpack i was it was pretty cool so we will uh, continue to get more information on that uh while we're at it tethered um uh, Paul, I might have got myself a, besides the torn meniscus, a different birthday present, which was the uh, elite saddle. And it's kind of awesome. Ellie, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't listen to this. Uh, uh, I knew when they came out with that. Yeah. I was like, he's going to buy it a hundred percent. He's got a couple, he's going to, you can't, you can't avoid it. So yeah, I think it looks pretty sweet, man. Not going to lie. They did a nice job with that one, but um, their stuff. They did. Good. Yeah, they really did. So get your saddles, get comfortable. Like Paul said, season's just around the corner. Um, make sure you're ready to go. Still got our friends over at Go Wild. I think they're on the wind down uh, at the moment, still catching up from Send It Slam. But check out Go Wild. It's your online platform for hunters, anglers, archers, outdoorsmen, and women. If, if there's something to do outside, they've got a, a they call it trail for it uh, that you can get your social media content, meet new people. Really cool. Really enjoy it communicating with everybody on there um we are o2 podcast on there i run that for the most part paul it's you paul campbell are you paul campbell or paul campbell three two two paul campbell okay um on there and uh yeah so follow us check out what they've got going on great shops full of uh good products vortex tethered's on there as well and yeah those guys are awesome so uh, let's see, Paul. What else have we yeah, got? Yeah, good stuff. Oh, the big event from last week was the archery hike. So yeah, with- I missed it. My apologies, Dustin Ross. I left for vacation the following morning. I had some vehicle issues I had to take care of, work stuff popping up. I just couldn't make it down, man. I was really upset about that. Yeah, we were going to give you a lot of hell about that. And then when I started to like kind of give you grief and you explained to me what your day was like, I'm like, 
Mm. It's okay, Paul. It's okay. <laughs> that didn't sound right. the, the The crap that you dealt with that day and those two days leading up to your vacation, I get it. That wouldn't have been. Uh, oh, it's frustrating. But man, I'll I'll just give you the rundown. First of all, Willie William, remember William, our buddy down in Ascendant Slam. Oh God, was I, he there? No, I think his cousin Willie was there though, and uh, maybe Bill, Bill, Bill <laughs> Willie's son Bill Jr. No, I'm joking, but. It's always funny, um, the people that come out to different things like that, and you get to meet new people, and some scratch your, make your scratch your head, and other ones, it's like, oh, cool. So, uh, but Justin, great, great job, uh, Justin Ross with Farmers and Hunters Feeding the Hungry. The event was to raise money for uh, that organization and help with Justin getting the processing fees done every in the fall. So, as you can imagine. He, I can't remember how many thousands of meals they, they provide, but you know, those deer have to be butchered and they have to be uh, packaged and, and everything to get to the, the shelters that need them. And that's not free. So Justin's job basically, uh, and a volunteer work is to raise money to help get the butchering fees covered. Right. And what he did was amazing. So I think that's his plot of land down there, um, that he's got, set up a 24 target archery hike. And when we say hike, like it was a hike, man. It His goal was to set that up to be like spot and stalk hunting. And that's exactly what it was. It, paths were basically non-existent. It was follow the orange tape on the trees. And uh, at one point, <laughs> this is, this is probably why my knee really hurts today, but, uh, there, I missed the orange tape on the trees, and it was this. It like went around this ridge. If you had followed the orange tape, it would have been made it really nice. But instead, I decided to go through what essentially was the Grand Canyon of Hocking County or whatever county we were in down there, and uh, it was this huge gorge. And then after the fact, I realized we met, and you know, so it was like down and up and over these massive fallen red oaks. And oh my god, that was a terrible decision. But I just kicked your ass the entire time. It kicked my ass. So. Um, but we shot, what was that? It was Friday and it was warm. It was very warm. Saturday they had a lot of rain, but it looked like the guys that were out there had a lot of fun. The, the course was awesome. And then he had such a, a, a variety of targets, a variety of distances, situations. He had this little scorecard that had, well, he had the scorecard on the one side and then you had, um, descriptions of everything. So you knew what you were looking for, where, you know, we're going and he did I, I don't know if Justin has a degree in English but his writing skills were amazing as far as like you know this is the the showcase animal of the the west and then you look off 80 yards away and here's this elk and you know this little pocket that you had to shoot through and the targets were placed really well um tree branches just in the right spots to screw with you but you could still make the shot if you were good um at one point, I was 0 for 3 on the elk, so, you know, the largest animals out there. And, of course, Vince was just drilling them, uh, so I had to listen to that. So, shout out to Cousin Vince again for kicking my ass in archery. Um, but I'm trying to think what, oh, here's the other thing that, that he did, Paul, is, like, that elk target, the one elk target was a three-piece target, huge, huge foam target. Justin hauled those up the hill on his back <laughs> so, incredible 24 targets he had a side by side for a couple of them he said he could get to but a lot of these like i said it was not on a trail they were back in there so he had to like 
haul these in and it was I was more impressed by that I think than anything else so kudos to you Justin for all that hard work you put into it and I think it was a good event um everybody I talked to had a great time and Paul we will get you there next year I can't wait, man. The sky's the limit for an event like that. It's going to be a lot of fun. So yeah, and he's got some. Justin's got some really cool ideas um, of how to continue to grow that. So look for that next year. If you made it out this year, congratulations. If not, put it on the calendar for next year. So, but I think that's about all, all right. we got as far as uh, news around the state. And I know you want to get back to that beer in the beach. So uh, real quick here, though, we're going to give you guys, like I said, the beginning of our. I don't know, three or four part series with Dr. Ashby. Um, Dr. Yeah. Ed, Dr. Ed is, well, what he's an optometrist. Um, yeah, by training. By training. And then yeah. spent time in Africa and Australia uh, studying. Yeah, this, yeah, arrow, arrow setups and penetration. And um, this man is, I mean, honestly, he's probably one of the most interesting people in 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 a generation i mean this guy is unbelievable so this first episode we talk a lot about him his time in africa why it was there we didn't we don't go into really any technical uh discussions those were in some of the other conversations we had four conversations with him that were god what two hours long each one yeah and each and one of them um, was interrupted by a snowstorm that's the other thing we did start yeah. started these back in like january so yeah You'll have to. Um, uh, and he is, yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll we'll, we'll edit it out. We'll talk to you. You know, tell you tell you about it. But this one I think was was pretty straightforward. Um, super interesting guy. His his life. I mean, this 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 guy's life is something out of like you read about stuff like this in books and see it in the movie. I mean, this guy is super interesting. He's got a ton of information. Um, he started a foundation, the Ashby Foundation. I think their website is, is uh, I think it's just Ashby Foundation, A-S-H-B-Y foundation.org, I believe. Um, Ashbybowhunting.org is what it is. Officially. There you go. Ashby, yeah, Ashbybowhunting.org. In one of our conversations, we were talking with him, and, and, and he just casually talks about killing two rhinos, two black rhinos with a bow and arrow. And he talks about it. He just moves right on past the fact that he killed two, two rhinoceroses, rhinos, freaking rhinos with a bow and arrow. No big deal. And I mean, yeah, yeah, no big deal. And he just moves around. And I, and I believe I mean, we're talking like this, this, the technology he was using, this was like late eighties, early nineties, nothing compared. He did a ton of this with traditional archery equipment. Um, I mean, this guy is awesome. And I loved every minute with him. I, I love to get him on the show again. Um, just the research. I mean, he, he, he has these ideas and he does the testing and it's not just the stuff, you know, like the testing that he did. I mean, how popular is it? You see guys shooting, you know, arrows into, into layers of cardboard boxes and cement walls and, you know, arrow penetration. This guy was shooting at freaking Cape Buffalo. Live one. Like well, that's a, yeah, that's real ones. So yeah. we're, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll save that. We'll save the interesting tidbits about how he did this uh, to him. He talks about it better, but I mean, this guy was shooting into the largest, toughest animals on the face of the planet and collecting his data, not freaking cardboard boxes put together. So this guy's the real deal. I was really, really grateful that he took his time to talk to us. So yep. listen, enjoy it. Check out their website. Really interesting stuff. Really cool guy. Like you guys are enjoy this one. What are we at? We're about two months away, Paul, from from the beginning of deer season. So this should get you 
<laughs> heading down that path and tuning up those arrows and your bows and everything. Make sure you guys are ready to go. But we will leave it there, Paul. Enjoy the rest of your trip, my man, and uh, we will see you when you get back. Yeah. Big, big contest coming your way. Buckle big, up, guys. Big stuff coming. Big contest. Take big. care. There you go. See ya. Talking to Dr. Ed Ashby of the Ashby Foundation. Uh, Ed, thanks for your time. Really appreciate you coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. So middle of January, uh, 2022. I know you're from Texas. So here in Ohio, we've got a big winter storm coming our way. Is it nice and warm and sunny where you're at, Ed? 75 degrees and sunshine. Oh, God. I'm so jealous of that. Not a cloud yeah. in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> so are you, are you originally from Texas? Did you grow up there? Yep, born in East Texas and grew up there. So, you know, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Texan. There you go. Where'd, uh, where'd you go to school? Well, I grew up in uh, Henderson in East okay. Texas. And, uh, of course, went, you know, all the way through high school there. Then I did some pre-med over at uh, Kilgore Junior College, which, you know, 30 miles away from home. And uh, then I went to Southern in uh, Memphis. Very nice. So what was your, so you, you are a, a, a doctor. What was your, what was your career? Eyeballs. Eyeballs. Okay. Optometric physician. Yep. Excellent. So I want to, I want to ask you how did you, did you grow up hunting in a, in a hunting family? Absolutely. Uh, dad was a, a NRA rifle instructor. I shot my first rifle match when I was five years old and, uh, was hunting before I can even remember hunting. I mean, when we were when we were kids, uh, my brother just older than me, uh, Don, uh, you know, Dad used to give us one twenty-two shell, and if we brought an animal back, we could have another shell, and we could keep hunting all day as long as we killed an animal with every shot. And first time you missed, you were through for the day. You wait till tomorrow, you can start again. It was a good way to learn. I still have that rifle, 521T really? Remington. Oh wow, that's a that's small, a good way to make sure you, match you rifle. That's a good way to make sure you're taking uh, good shots there, isn't it? Oh yeah. So and we thought we were just having fun, but you know we we weren't a wealthy family. We were feeding the family, just didn't know it. <laughs> yeah, dad dad wanted to make sure you weren't wasting money out there. I guess so. That's that's a, that's hey. cool. That's. Uh, a bo- box of 22s was 19 cents. That's big money. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, They're probably plentiful and readily available, I'd imagine. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every little gas station had them. <laughs> oh, wow. So when did you start bow hunting? I mean, I, obviously, you were very comfortable with a rifle at a, at a young age. So when did you decide to, 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 to pick up the bow? I started uh, shooting a bow when I was nine years old. And that was after seeing uh, Howard Hill came around to the school promoting his uh, movie, Timba. And uh, boy, that that day I went home, cut down a willow branch, got some fishing line off dad's reel, put on there, made me some arrow shafts out of some willow, (laughs) cut some some broadheads out of tin cans with snips, stole a few feathers off of the chickens and the pheasants and stuff we raised. And made some arrows, 
bow lasted about three or four shots before it broke. Yeah. But I was hooked. <laughs> oh, I bet you didn't shoot any of those chickens, did you? Oh no, no. I just I just stole their feathers. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the so so you started shooting a bow and arrow at, at, at nine years old? What when did you start actually hunting game with, with well I started <laughs> From the first day I had a bow that wouldn't break after three shots. <laughs> oh, nice. It was small game then. I shot my first deer when I was 12. Okay. Buckers what kind of, what kind of with, setup did you use? Bow, I shot my first one with a rifle when I was uh, eight. Okay. Good, Andrew. I was just going to say what kind of setup it was. i thinking it was a bow, but if it was rifle, that makes sense. So, so uh, that, that, first, that first one with a bow was uh, with the first really good bow that i had which was a 42 pound bear recurve it's the and that was i started out with what i could find at the local hardware store sporting goods store and it was uh, a fiberglass bow that uh you know was ambidextrous and and the first i think the first three bows i had were all ambidextrous bows and then when I finally had a summer job that made me enough money to uh, to order a good bow, of course, there wasn't any place to go look at one. I ordered it from the catalog at the sporting goods store. And it asked right or left-handed. And I, I was right-handed, so I ordered right-handed. It came in, and I discovered I'd been shooting left-handed all those first three years. <laughs> so did you just maintain shooting left-handed, or did you switch? No, I, I switched over to right-hand, but... Uh, now, all my life, I uh, I kept a bow that I could uh, practice with left-handed, and I've I've shot uh, one deer shooting left-handed up in uh, North Carolina, and uh, it, it was a right-hand bow, but uh, I just switched it over to my left hand and you know shot off the shot off my hand off the side of the bow. It was only about a five-yard shot, but <laughs> I got the deer. <laughs> Good for you. That's incredible. It's funny. It's funny to hear about ordering it from a catalog and everything because the more things change, it's almost you can do that now. It's just the catalog isn't a website, right? Um, so it's just it's just different. You know, no kids nowadays know anything about ordering out of catalogs, but <laughs> oh, it's the terrible wait for it to come in the post that kills you when you're a kid. <laughs> oh yeah. So, so as a kid growing up in East Texas, you're, you're, you know, trying to figure out how to, how to hunt, hunt deer and, and small game with a bow. So nowadays, you know, as a kid growing up, I used to watch Jimmy Houston and Bill dance on the outdoor, you know, on ESPN on Saturday mornings. And I had all these, you know, hunters that you'd watch as a kid growing up. Who were some of the influences um, that, that, you know, like the lead, like I, I would assume Fred Bear was one guy that, that you just. Yeah, I, I actually was fortunate. I had, uh, I got in on the uh, very first bow hunting only lease in Texas. Now, there was no special archery season then, but uh, Bob Lee got this ranch under lease, and uh, so it was bow hunting only. And uh, he, of course, Bob was a big influence on me. But uh, got to got to hunt with Fred Bear, who came down, and Ben Pearson also. Oh wow! And uh, Ben Pearson was probably the biggest influence. I I became good friends with Ben, and uh, he gave me just tons of what I consider great advice on on shooting a bow. And, what was uh, what was his best advice that he gave you? Well, I uh, 
I always, I've always had a uh, real poor finger release. And of course, that's all you shot with traditional bows. There weren't any such thing as release aids. And, uh, you know, I, I was, I was a pretty big kid, you know, for my age. And uh, I had been always shot fairly, you know, with typical weight bows, uh, 40 to, I think the heaviest thing I'd shot up at that point was 55 pounds. And uh, Ben, Ben told me that, uh, you know, what you need to do is you need a, a long length bow, a physical length, so that the finger pinch won't be so bad. And you don't want a bow that's real fast. You want one that the limbs move slowly. And the important thing is to concentrate on your follow through. From the time you turn loose of the arrow, don't let your bow hand move till the arrow hits the target. And he said, with that, said your, your release won't matter. Those heavy limbs will pull the string back into alignment long before the arrow ever leaves the bow. And um, it was good advice. It, uh, from that day on, I hunted with longer length bows and uh, they've served me well. And it gave me one other good piece of advice on my shooting form. He says, don't listen to all these people that tell you about shooting forms. And these are target archers. The best thing you can do is shoot the form that feels natural to you and learn to shoot that form. And uh, I always thought that was real good advice. And, and back in those days, we did, uh, we did a lot of practice on moving animals. And moving animals just as big as one standing still. And I find uh, something people don't do now. Moving animals don't jump the string. There, it's a much better shot than an animal that's static. And, and nobody does it anymore because nobody practices it anymore. But we used to shoot a lot of rabbits in front of hounds and we shot, you know, at flying birds and all sorts of stuff like that. And we practiced a lot with, you know, a hand thrown disc and balloons turned loose in the wind and all sorts of things like that to, to practice that kind of shooting. That's just, uh, that was a common thing back then. And, you know, what little video stuff you could see, you know, the, the clips and stuff was Howard Hill shooting moving targets or Ben Pearson. They, I think Ben was actually probably a better shot on a moving target than Howard Hill was. Uh, he was absolutely phenomenal on moving targets. And so it was just one of the things we did. You know, we didn't, we, you didn't think about it. You didn't wait for an animal to stop. He come walking by in range or, or trotting by or, you know, I've shot several running flat out. And uh, it's just one of the, you just learn to do that. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I couldn't tell that my accuracy was any worse on a moving target than on a static target. But if it was, the, the lack of movement of the animal probably more than made up for any inaccuracy. That might be the difference between the two. I think it's something people miss out on now that they never practice. I feel like it's it's you know it's really popular for 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 bow hunters with you know whitetail to to call out to them to get that animal to stop moving. Yep, and that so, puts him on alert. You know, almost guarantee we've got hundreds of videos between what the foundation's got, what Troy Fowler's got, and what uh, Garrett Schleif's got from clients through his. Uh, you know, through his website uh, for the company. 
And out of all those videos, we have one video that shows a standing deer not reacting before the arrow gets there. Just wow. one. And that was one it was shot from the ground, but it's in high, high wind. And I think the wind noise covered all the noise of the shot, the arrow flight, and the animal just didn't know the arrow was coming. That's that's fascinating. We're we're definitely I I wanna I wanna put a pin in that exact conversation right there. Um, you just you just mentioned three absolute legends in in the archery world, uh, and I, I want to just ask you real quick. And this is just for me. What what was Fred Bear like? Just as a man, as as a oh, hunter. Oh, uh, absolutely fantastic man. Great storyteller. Yeah. Uh, uh, just a world of of knowledge of archery and archery history. You know, uh, going all the way back to medieval times. He, he was fascinating to talk to. Uh, he He's the guy that turned me on to stalking. I've done the vast majority of my hunting stalking, not not out of stands. Uh, up till I met him when he came down to hunt, uh, I had never even considered trying to stalk deer. Now, the small game and stuff, I, we'd always walked around and squirrel hunted and rabbit hunted and stuff. But it never occurred to me on deer. But uh, he went out uh, one morning and he stalk hunted through a really thick bedding area. And by about 1030, he was back with a deer. And he stalked right up on it in this thicket. You know, and it, in the thickets when they're bedded down, uh, they will occasionally get up and move around every so often, get a bite or two of food and lay back down. But uh, if you stalk carefully and you're a good stalker, uh, and there's a lot of stalking scales, uh, you can get right up on them. I've shot, uh, the closest one was a bedded deer at about five yards, and it had no idea I was there. So people that talk is... about, you know, whitetails are so alert and you can't stalk them. There's a fair number of critters in the world that are more alert than a whitetail. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can I can definitely attest to that. So um, among those those wild turkeys you were talking oh, about. Oh yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I, trying to stalk a wild turkey is up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I you know and I I I never shut up about the wild turkey and uh, so I know Andrew definitely doesn't want to hear wild turkey talk today. Our listeners probably don't want to hear me talk about wild turkeys, but here we are. Well, so, uh, I must admit I have a fondness for wild turkey. It's my favorite drink. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you a go. A good bottle of rare breed is hard to beat. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's talk about you know that that time frame when 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 you're really kind of coming up and 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 you know learning to stock wild game. You've got Fred and and Howard Hill and Ben Pearson. What was like a real popular setup for for a bow hunter at that time? Just the equipment that you're uh, using. Well, most of the guys uh, down we had uh, 110 people. On that archery lease, that archery only, because it was the only place you'd go if you were a bow hunter. And, and they came from all over Texas, a few from Louisiana, Oklahoma, Arkansas. Uh, and uh, I would guess that most of the men were shooting around 55 to 60 pounds. Uh, the lightest bow that any of the men were shooting. Uh, was about 42 pounds. I don't I don't remember anybody shooting a bow below that. 
But we had uh, one lady on the lease, who, and she took a deer with it. She was shooting a 17-pound recurve. And, uh, and she took a deer, only got about four inches of penetration. But it was placed perfect. Couldn't have been better. 17 pounds. That's incredible. And so, we had one old guy there that uh, he was, well, when I was a kid, he was old. <laughs> he was in his 60s. And he shot a hundred pound longbow. That really impressed me. <laughs> wow, hundred pound longbow. Being a big kid and following, uh, you know, following Ben's advice, I worked up in poundage uh, where I was shooting a seventy pound, and that became pretty much my standard for years. Uh, you know, until I started hunting bigger animals. So just to clarify for the listeners that, that haven't shot, you know, traditional bow, recurve, longbow, there's no let off with those bows, correct? I've never no. shot one. Okay. So it's <laughs> 70 pounds all the way it back. It gets harder the further you pull it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so 70 pounds, I mean, that is just, that is, that is stout. So let, let, I'm going to, I want to ask you, talk, talk about, so you've got, you know, the, the setups that you just talked about, and then, you know, there's kind of an evolution, um, what was that evolution like, you know, from to say what mid sixties, maybe to, you know, where we've got, you know, we've got certain getting, you know, the, the compound bows that the, you know, the bear came out with and, and things kind of started to change in the hunting industry and get away from those more traditional bows. What, what was that time frame and, and why did that, you know, why did that well, evolution was, start to happen? Uh, I guess I was in high school when the Allen compound, first came out and uh that, that was the first of the of the compounds and uh would look pretty antique to compound shooters today but uh you know all of a sudden you had jumped the velocities you know from 165 70 feet per second up to about 230 and it a big jump in performance And, uh, you know, it, uh, I didn't jump into the compounds at all uh, until I think my first compound was in 1980. And it's actually what started me on the study because, uh, you know, I was reading all the stuff in the magazines and I decided finally, I, okay, everybody's talking about how great they are. You know, I'm, I'm going to get a compound. I got a dart. And uh, I think it was 65 pounds. And I bought, you know, light arrows, fastest thing I could find. And, you know, some of the replaceable blade broad, multi-blade broad heads. And that, I was living in Minnesota at the time, working on the Indian reservation up there. And uh, I hit and lost four deer that year. And I had never, never done that. And I started on a quest to, you know, coming from a shooting family and, and where we discussed ballistics at, at the dining table, uh, I did what was natural for me. I said, okay, you know, let's go dig up through the literature and find out what really works. And I was looking for something like uh, uh, Hatcher's work with, with rifles post-World War II. And there was absolutely nothing. And, you know, that, that told you what performs on real animals. Uh, Hatcher did uh, his work on donkeys and goats and pigs, but he was 
know, it's a different era. He was shooting live animals in restraints for the military, trying to determine the uh, terminal effectiveness of bullets. And that's what I was looking for out of eras. You know, so I figured, well, somebody's had to do this. Archie's been around a lot longer than guns. And to this day, uh, the information I've gotten that the foundation has is all there is on live animals. You know, I've carefully collected data. Uh, so the information's just not there. Everything you heard was either out of the industry or people sponsored by the industry, or it was just anecdotal stories that, that people had. And uh, I think we, we got off on the wrong track a long time ago. And now we're having to relearn what primitive man probably do, knew thousands of years ago to find out what really works best on an animal. You know, nowadays our, our survival, our, our next meal doesn't depend on collecting that animal. And uh, people don't have the same motivation to be sure what they've got is gonna kill that animal when it hits it. And that was their big concern was that they wanted to kill every animal they hit. And uh, somewhere we lost that. So <clears throat> real quick, I'm I've just pulled up the the actual it looks like a newspaper article for that Allen original compound yeah. bow that you're talking about. Uh, I've never seen this and it's very interesting. <laughs> so I, I'll just give you some of the highlights. There's two models. Uh, $215 was the higher end model and 115 uh, was the lower end model. That's a lot uh, of money. <laughs> oh, back then, of course. Nowadays, you look at them, they're $1,200, right, or more. Um, so it's just that was interesting. 20 to 25% relaxation. Okay, so there's your your let off. Yep, your let off. <laughs> uh, I, th I think it's set relaxation. up. Relaxation. Pull weights from 25 to 60 pounds. And then, as you were saying, without having real data, uh, more of what the industry tells you or kind of anecdotal that appears that Allen's research was uh, – it shows an average recovery rate on big game hits of 84.1% with the Allen compounds, yep. uh, nearly three times that of the conventional bows. So. Well, one of the big things is that uh, he was forced into using the same arrows we were using off of traditional bows, which were a, a better arrow than the arrow that's commonly used today. Were they made out of, what were they made out of? Were they well, uh, at the time? There were true fiberglass eras. Uh, Shakespeare made them. Uh, uh, several companies had them. I'm not sure who made all of them. Uh, and of course, then later you had the microflights, which were a, a true fiberglass era. Uh, no carbons around at all. And of course, a lot of the guys shot wood eras. And uh, even from, uh, oh, from the time I was in... Uh, high school, I guess, uh, I started shooting the uh, Forgewoods, uh, Sweetland's compressed cedar arrows, which were with a broad head on them around 800 grains. And they had built-in weight for the center. At that point, I had you know, actually on up into, what, uh, at least into about 2000. I'd never looked at FOC, didn't even crossed my mind that it had an effect on air performance. But uh, the Sweetlands were progressively 
compressed. And he would cut uh, billets that were three quarters of an inch at the front. And I think they went down to below, just below a half inch at the back. And then he compressed those into a parallel shaft and, and turned it down. And uh, they were probably the best wood air ever made. Uh, fantastic. I, looking back, uh, you know, as we got into FOC years later, which we won't delve into till we start talking about, you know, the study and stuff way on. But uh, they uh, worked out about 19%, which by pure coincidence was the first place I could notice a boost in penetration was 19%. So it was just a fortuitous thing. And I shot them for years and knew they worked really well on game and had no idea why. And looking back, I can give you a lot of reasons why they work. But uh, at that point, I had no idea. I just, I just knew they were working well for me. I was killing a lot of animals. And uh, so I was real happy with them. So that, that first year you hunted with a compound bow, 1980, you lost four animals. Yep. Did that, was that the moment, you know, with that, that fourth animal and you're standing there going, what just happened? Yeah, the because they were all well-placed shots. You know, they yeah. were shots that I would have expected to kill, kill the deer. And, did you go back to your traditional setup after that? Yeah, for a while. And uh, then I had a, uh, uh, Oh, one that, that's just got the single string. I can't even think of the name of it now. They still make them, I think, marked mostly as fishing bows. But uh, it handled heavy arrows pretty well. I shot it for a while. Uh, but I found that overall, because I did a lot of shooting on moving animals, I, I did better with a traditional bow because I didn't have that very disturbing break in the draw when the bow let off. I find that much more difficult to shoot on a moving target than a conventional bow. And uh, so I went back to for my hunting to uh, basically using the traditional bows. Now, when we got to the testing, we used compounds in a lot of the testing. Uh, a lot of people look at it because there's not a lot of data there in the later testing with compounds. They think compounds weren't used in the testing. The only reason we ever got away from testing with the compounds is that I finally started getting error designs that were efficient enough that with the compounds in the heavier weights that I shot, we're producing exit wounds on buffalo. Well, if I'm trying to compare one setup to another, one arrow setup to another for their relative efficiency, anything that exits can't be used because I've changed penetration mediums. I'm no longer in the animal. So I went back to using traditional bows and uh, had, you know, so that I could catch the arrow within the animal. And that's the reason most of the later data is all with traditional bows. So but, uh, with the foundation now, we're going back and looking at a lot of the stuff with uh, 
with compound bows, but uh, we've bought some bows that go down to very light draw weights, as light as 15 pounds to use in, in our testing. So that we can crank the weights down uh, and, and still be able to catch the arrows in the big animals. Yeah, that's 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 interesting. I cannot wait to dive into the testing. I've got I've got a ton of questions, and I know Andrew Andrew does too. I want to I want to stick. I'm I'm I've I've read a lot about you. And I'm really fascinated with. So you you East Texas. You're in Minnesota. When did you take your first trip to Africa? Uh, well, when I went over to do uh, well, my first one was a rifle hunt in 1975, but. Uh, for the bow hunting in Africa, really got kicked off with the the tall study, and that was uh, 1984 and 85. So those those were my first two years of really getting involved in African hunting. And once you've done Africa, that you, you have to keep going. It is just if you're a hunter, I mean that that was the place. So read all these stories about just falling in love with Africa that you can't you can't avoid it. So so tell us about that first trip to Africa. Um, like what were you hunting? I I've heard of people going to Africa, but I don't know anything about uh, first bow hunt or first gun hunt. <laughs> let's do let's do the bow hunt. We'll stick with the bows. Well, that was uh, I had written uh, to South African Game Department and ask about the possibility of hunting a rhino with bow and arrow. And the answer came back, no. Well, about five years later, they decided that they wanted to look at possibly legalizing bow hunting. But they wanted to research it first and see, you know, how effective it was, you know, what the wound loss rates look like, one of the things they wanted to look at is how big an animal should you be allowed to hunt with a bow? And they're all sitting around the conference table talking about this. And one of them says, you know, somebody wrote me about wanting to hunt a rhino with a bow. And he went back and dug in his files and found my letter. And they contacted me and said, you, you still want to do that? Well, I didn't have to think about it very long. Uh, to tell them, yeah, when can I come? <laughs> and so we set it up for the next year. That was that was 83, they called me. And I went over to do this rhino hunt, not knowing that this was part of their project. Uh, got over there and uh, met with uh, Spud Bloodingham, who was head of the, the tall game department. And uh, he was along the company on the hunt. And we... Uh, we did the rhino hunt, but we talked a lot about bow hunting and what could be done and so forth. And uh, they explained to me what they were doing and said, uh, next year, we're going to do uh, a cull in the tall park uh, in uh, Makuzi. And uh, we have to go in every year, have to cull off around 5,000 animals. You know, with rifles to keep the population in check. So we're going to go in before the rifle call and uh, shoot as many animals as we can with, with bows and collect the data. And we'd like to repeat this rhino, see if it was a fluke. 
And so they, they asked me if I could, uh, you know, if I'd be willing to come back next year and bring as many different arrow setups, shafts, different kinds of shaft materials, uh, different weight arrows, uh, different broadheads, and let's try out and see what, uh, what kind of effect we get. And uh, so I did and went back and uh, we did the uh, uh, second rhino first. And then we went over to Makuzi. And uh, in a month's time, I uh, shot 154 animals. Now, the way they wanted us to do those, we were backed up with a rifle. So when an animal presented for a shot, they wanted us to take every shot we thought we could make, regardless of the animal's angle. They wanted to see what happened with bad hits, essentially. If we were not sure we had a lethal hit, then they would immediately put the animal down with a rifle with a shot remote to where the arrow hit. And we would dissect the animal and look to, to see what happened. And uh, whether it was lethal hit or non-lethal, particularly the non-lethal ones to see why they weren't lethal. Uh, and if we couldn't tell, uh, they had a couple of veterinarians on staff. And we'd carry the animal back in and they would do a formal dissection. And they could tell us for sure, you know, what had happened, what the error had done. Uh, so it was really interesting. And that got my interest in what was going on. And uh, at the end of it, now that was the only part I really concentrated on was the error performance part of it. Uh, they were collecting data on uh, uh, time from shot to collapse, distance traveled by the animal, stress on the animal when it was shot, stress on the animals accompanying the one you shot, uh, all sorts of things like that. And uh, so I wasn't really involved in that part of the data collection. Uh, but I collected all the data off the arrows and you know, brought it back and, and put it all, <laughs> well, as sort of a spreadsheet as best I could. I, I had a Atari computer that had 54Ks of memory. Uh, so this is pretty early days. And uh, a lot of it had to do with hand calculations and uh, developing the graphs all by hand and so forth. Put it all together in a formal report for my part and sent it back to them. And they put the whole report together, uh, took it to the tall parts board, and uh, uh, the tall parts board looked at all the data and looked at the recommendations, and they legalized bow hunting. Now, that was the first affirmative law for bow hunting anywhere in Africa. Everywhere, up to that time, every place that bow hunting was mentioned in Africa, it was a law prohibiting bow hunting. Now, there were a few places where people hunted because the law was silent. That's the way Howard Hill hunted, Bob Swinehart, uh, all of those early bow hunters, Art Young, if you want to go back that far. Uh, you, you could hunt in, Kenya was open then, Kenya was silent on bow hunting, Tanzania, and Mozambique. And so virtually all of the early bow hunting was done in those countries just because it wasn't specifically prohibited. Oh, one thing I want to throw in, because I've seen people 
uh, some of these people that have some videos on YouTube have said that, you know, I was doing that study because I was paid by the Tall Parts Board. I wasn't. I wasn't paid a penny. I had to pay all expenses out of my pocket, all the equipment I tested. That was at my expense. Uh, the travel and so forth, everything was at my expense. The only thing is I wasn't paying guides and trophy fees. And uh, so you uh, did it. You, you did it because you, you wanted any, to any trophies you, either. <laughs> right. You did it because you wanted to just bow hunt Africa, right? I wanted to bow hunt Africa and I wanted the data. I had already started in 82 collecting data on my kills because, like I said, I could not find any data. So I had already started collecting information. And we collected a fair amount of data off of every shot. Uh, but as the study went on, we collected more and more and more. Uh, when I was doing the, the last of the buffalo studies on the Asian buffalo down in Australia, uh, I was collecting 118 data points off of every shot. Uh, the new database we're using in the foundation collects right around 250 data points. Now, some of that's because we got new things that we have to record the information from that didn't exist then, like collars on errors or anything like that. So we've got data in for that. And of course, can put them in formal databases now. It'd be a whole lot easier to manipulate the data, find the answers we want to find. I had to search a lot of it out by hand for years and years. But uh, even when it was just 118 points, it's a major task. Uh, just to record the data and then to enter it in computers and stuff. So when I was doing the buffalo stuff in uh, Australia, I couldn't shoot more than one buffalo every three days because the rest of the time was devoted to resharpening errors, setting up new error setups, uh, getting all that data that I, I voice recorded it while we we're doing the dissection and getting that all down on record forms and then getting all that entered into a computer uh so it was a, a massive full-time effort uh for three months a year to collect that data and uh it, it, people people don't realize how much effort goes into it i tried it a, a few times to get other people to collect some data and i never found a single person that even though they said they wanted to, they would actually do it when it came found out how much work it was. I feel like so all, that, all that data is stuff we had to collect ourselves. And I know we'll get more into that, but the um, the patience, right? I know when I go out to shoot, I want to like, I shoot one, okay, ready for the next, like, okay, ready for the next. And you probably had to take one shot and then take all those, those data points and, Take you a long time before you got to go to the well, next it'd be one. More than that, we would uh, all of that later ladder data is uh, off of freshly downed animals. Uh, so we would go out and you know head shoot, neck shoot a buffalo, put him on the ground, set him up. We had 30 minutes of work time because then physiological changes occur. Rigor mortis starts setting in. Uh, blood starts coagulating to the point it won't flow. Uh, in a live animal, you're shooting an arrow into a 
blood suffused environment. Blood, you know how slick it is when it gets on your hands or a knife handle, uh, actually lubricates the air during penetration. So we found that after about 30 minutes, uh, the results we were getting were changed from what they were on a freshly downed animal. And along with all that database, I ran a separate database of animals bow hunted and killed. And I used that as a comparison. Was what we were seeing in the data from setup shots, uh, did it correlate to what we found in actual hunting situations? So that made a double check. And we're doing that with a new study also. So the actual hunting shots are one database. And uh, we're trying, and so far, we've only had one trip to Africa so far for the foundation. But uh, we're trying to do the same thing there. We're trying to actually hunt them with the air so that we get a hunting shot and then the test shots. And uh, so far, that's, uh, that's the format we're going to try to go with for, for all the new data collected. So you're, you're in Africa for a month. You harvest... What was it? 154 rhinos or 154 animals? Four animals, yeah. Yeah, okay. 100, 154 animals in in one month. So someone told me years ago, you can collect all the data in the world. It's the decisions that you make with that data that's important. So that that first dive into collecting data and experimenting. What information? You leave Africa, you come back to the U.S. What information did you take with you from that trip? Is was that when the transformation started to happen to the heavy arrows and you know, looking well, yeah, at the lethality? Yeah, one of the things we of, found there, and uh, <clears throat> after years of test, I couldn't believe when I looked back at the data. But uh, if you look at that very first uh, information from the tall study, one of the things we found is that the arrows that broke heavy bone, it took in the area of 650 grains of arrow mass to consistently break those heavy bones. Now that had to be coupled with the better broadheads. But uh, after years of testing, we, we still, if you look at the heavy bone threshold in our 12 point data is 650 grains. And that holds with compounds too, with the, with the testing we've done so far. Uh, arrow mass is what breaks heavy bones, but you have to have all those other factors in place. It has to be structurally, structural integrity has to be perfect on the air. If anything breaks, bends, gives, then all bets are out the window. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, you hear the anecdotal stories of people breaking heavy bones with light arrows. It happens. It's the frequency. It happened with every broadhead we tested. If the broadhead remained intact, if the air remained structurally secure. But sometimes that frequency, you know, was only even even above the threshold, you know, 15%. So you can take a light air and sometimes things are going to go perfect and you'll break a heavy bone with it. But to reliably break one at a hundred percent frequency you need the right broadhead on a structurally secure error so pe people really misinterpret that all the time when you came came back from africa like paul is saying 
you took that data. Did you start doing more testing in the United States, or did you well, set I, up I was your next? Doing, like I said, I started collecting data in '82, right? And I used the same format I was already using for the data in the tall. And we were looking, you know, basically at the structural integrity, uh, you know, what was hit with the animal, uh, bone hits, uh, depth of penetration. Uh, and of course, with all of that, you've got shot angle, you know, you've got all sorts of things. What bones specifically were it? You know, was it a combination of a, a rib, rib entrance, rib exit, uh, through the scapular, flat, uh, a spine hit? So you had to look at all those factors in there. So at, at what point in your life did you decide that Africa was calling and and and, and you pack up and, and you head out? Uh, well, I retired in 94. Okay. And immediately liquidated everything I had in the States and moved to Africa. But, so was that just because of the, the, the hunting there? Was that Was that the draw for you? That and I wanted to continue the testing. Every time I have done tests, I've gone in with a long list of questions and things set up. I, okay, and arrows already built up for these tests and ready to go and, and so I could do the test as quickly as possible. And when I finished that year's worth of testing or that series of testing, I always had more questions than I did when I went in. And I still have pages and pages written out of questions that we want to look at with the foundation. It, when, uh, it, every time you you find something, you, you need to investigate it to find out more about it. When did you start the Ashby Foundation? Uh, 2017. Okay. So you so you you were just testing for your own knowledge. I mean, you just had this 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 curiosity. Yeah, it was, it was, I answers. started out all for me finding out what worked best. Yeah. And so, uh, as I got the data and realized how much more effective it was than the era setups people were typically using, uh, I said, okay, I, you know, I just got to publish some of this stuff. So I started writing it up and uh, yeah, I couldn't get anything published in the States. Uh, but but stuff got published in other parts of the world. Uh, in the States, uh, most of the magazines that I sent stuff to would say, oh, that's African animals. That's not African North American hunting. But a few were honest and, and said, uh, hey, you know, you're naming products in there and some of those products aren't working well and some of those are advertisers. So we, we can't publish this. And uh, I, at least there are that was guess, the, right. Yeah, that, that was the common common thread that I saw. OK, <clears throat> Doc, Dr. Ed, I have to ask you. All right. So you retire from optometry or in the eye doctor world in 1994. And basically you devote your life for the next 25, 30 years to testing arrows. How crazy did people think you were? Because I know if I told my wife that tomorrow, no, I just bush bomb. I, I don't know how crazy people thought I was, because I wasn't around that many people. <laughs> the first four it. years in Africa, though, I did uh, either at guiding other people or 
doing it on my own, I averaged about 300 days a year of hunting. So I was packing in a lot of, a lot of hunting. Nothing wrong with that. Now, so we did, we were told to ask a sto- about a story uh, about your time over in Africa. And maybe this will ring a bell, but um, can you, can you tell us a story about the, the cigarettes and uh, getting through some checkpoints <laughs> or something like that? Well, uh, some parts of Africa, you know, were, uh, how should we say it? Not the most stable parts of the world. And you go down the road and there will be a fleece checkpoint and or you cross borders and, and of course there's a checkpoint there. You, but you go further down the road and uh, there might be a checkpoint from some uh, radical group that's trying to overthrow the government. <laughs> the way you get through those checkpoints, uh, they want something. You know, some of those people, even though they're working for the government, don't even get paid. And the common question when you pull up to one is, what did you bring me today? Well, that could get quite expensive if you weren't careful because they're looking around the car when they're asking you, you know, see what you got in there. And uh, I, I've never been a uh, cigarette smoker. Never, never smoked a cigarette in my life. Smoked pipe cigars, not cigarettes. Uh, but I would carry cards of cigarettes, keep them well hidden. And I would take a pack of cigarettes out and have about six cigarettes in it at the most. And I'd put it up on the dash. And when they were looking around, I'd look around and say, oh, I said, look, I've got, uh, I got six cigarettes here. I said, uh, I'll give you three of them. And, and I'll leave you three till I can get some more. And they were happy. They got some. But they weren't going to let you through that checkpoint without a lot of hassle if you didn't give them something. Now, I had done it with other things before I hit on the cigarette idea. Um, Pencils, uh, a little notebook, anything like that. Those cost more than three cigarettes. Cigarettes over there were about 19 cents a pack. So without all the tax that we have to pay here. So that was a cheap way to travel around Africa and get through all the checkpoints. The more remote you get in Africa, the more common that becomes that you have to give them a little something. Uh, you even see it at major airports. Uh, I've, I've had times where you try to get on a plane at, uh, at Arusha in Tanzania that uh, if you didn't have something to give them, you were going to miss your flight. They made it real clear. Up there, their ter- common term is... Uh, I need some chai, which is tea. And that's their uh, their signal that uh, you need to give them something or you're not getting much further along the line. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. <clears throat> that's a good that's a good story. How, how many years were you in Africa? Uh, I had to leave Africa in 2001. Uh, Why? I was I was based in Zimbabwe. And the U.S. Congress passed a thing called the Zimbabwe Democracy Act, where they were condemning what Mugabe was doing of uh, taking the white farms without any compensation. And his retaliation was to kick all the Americans out of the country that didn't have permanent residency. Why is that temporary residency? And uh, I got caught on the first day. 
and I had 24 hours to get out of the country. And uh, I got out, I had to take my guns out. So I got out with my guns and my binoculars and one change of clothes. And they confiscated everything else I had there. House, property, all safari kit, vehicles, everything. And uh, I came back to the States, had to regroup, uh, literally, because uh, I had liquidated everything in the States except for, for some books that I'd left stored with a friend. And uh, I, I had lost everything. I had to start life over with nothing, you know, in my mid-50s. And unfortunately, I had my government retirement. But, you know, it takes a while to build up any cash. So after I regrouped, I went down exploring places to go uh, to Australia because I had a, a client I guided several times from Australia and uh, Mike Aldersey. And he encouraged me to come down there and look around. And uh, so I went down there and he found a used vehicle that I could get pretty cheap. And I got that and I uh, drove all around Australia looking at stuff. So I said, okay, this is, uh, you know, th this will do. And uh, he had a friend up in the Northern Territory uh, who was retired uh, chief game ranger for uh, Kakadu Park. And after he retired, he talked the government into funding a project uh, for four decades the game department had tried to eliminate the buffalo. And Dave, uh, his name's Dave Lindner, has probably shot, who knows, maybe 20,000 buffalo. But they literally shot every buffalo they saw. They shot them from helicopters, from boats, walking, didn't matter what. They were trying to eliminate them and were unable to do it. It's just, just too much area up there, too thick. They couldn't eliminate them. So he talked them into funding a project and he got this thing, they call it Buffalo Farm and high fenced it. It's about a seven mile by seven mile square. And they're trying to determine the carrying capacity for Buffalo without it interfering with the native animals and uh, destroying the habitat. And he has to take about 500 of Buffalo a year off of it, that farm. And uh, he does some testing for Woodley Bullets. And uh, I went up there on my tour and met Dave. Now, Dave's uh, pretty much a recluse. Uh, doesn't take kindly to just everybody. Uh, doesn't allow a lot of people there. But for whatever reason, we hit it off. Maybe because at heart, we're both bush bums. And uh, he said, yeah, I was telling him what I, you know, what I'd been doing in Africa. And he said, well, you know, come up here. We can, we can do the testing on the Asian buffalo. And after that, I had a place to do all the testing I could possibly handle. Uh, and I would go up there three months every year. I, I went twice, six months, one year. But three of those months were uh, in, you know, December, January, February, uh, which I don't recommend. That's Southern Hemisphere. That's the uh, height of summer. And the heat, the humidity, and the bugs are virtually unbearable. It is really tough. 
And so I would never go back and do that part again. After that, I went June, July, August every year. <laughs> dead, dead a winner. So yeah. you, you're, you're, you're back full time in the in in the U.S. early 2000s. Total yep. re, total restart. Um, yep. You're traveling to Africa, to Australia, and, and things are happening. So, so you you've got at this point you've got a couple decades worth of of research testing of data of real world data yeah not a spreadsheet i mean i'm talking dead animals on the ground yeah so i'm I'm also hunting animals down there so i've got the test data and then i've got animals hunting i was down i went down you can get a a three-month visa as a tourist into australia then you have to leave now there's nothing in the laws about how long you got to be out so i didn't come back to the states I would uh, leave Australia and I'd go over to New Zealand or Vanuatu or New Guinea, you know, somewhere. And after however long I wanted to spend, I'd go back to Australia, do another one. And, and you know, that's what I was doing. And, and I, most of the time, I either lived in a tent in the bush uh, or uh, uh, a lady friend of mine, uh, who happened to be the uh, editor at the time for the archery magazine down there. Yeah, I'd go stay over there. And uh, had uh, she lived upstairs. The whole downstairs was the magazine office. And, uh, you know, I could put my sleeping pad down there on their carpet, had a place to stay, and it was a good place to build arrows and get stuff ready to, to go back and do another round. And so I had I'd been writing articles them starting way back when I was in Africa. I wrote uh, a monthly article for them for about uh, 12 years. And uh, anonymously, I wrote them as the old derelict bow hunter. And uh, (laughs) people down there had a great time trying to figure out who it was. But uh, I carried on with with writing articles after I was down there for a long, long time. And uh, but I was I was able to uh, save save enough money that when things went south, I was able to come back to Texas and at least put down a down payment on a place to live. But it was by not paying hardly anything down there for anything. You know, I I ate what I could scrounge out of the bush uh, mostly and uh, I said lived in a tent. Lived out of my vehicle. I got a a uh, Toyota used Toyota twin cab and put a little shell on the back. And I was fully equipped and mobile. Carried everything I needed with me for survival. Uh, and when I did the outback, I carried uh, uh, stuff to make a enormous solar still because water is your big problem. And discovered lots of ways to, you know, I uh, I would save every two liter plastic bottle I got, because you can put green in those and set them in the sun and you can collect a lot of water out of it every day. Uh, so that was one of my one of my big water sources. If I broke down somewhere, something you had to have. It was either that solar cell <clears throat> and or those bottles. How long did you do that for? Eight years. 
Then I hurt my back, broke my back. Mm. That was the end of my testing. How'd you and, do that? Uh, well, with all the dangerous things I've done, I hate to admit it, but I was visiting friends in New Zealand. Uh, and they live on the south, lived at that time on the South Island, uh, on the West Coast, which has more rain than coastal Alaska. And all the houses have mud rooms. So you come in through the mud room, you take off your muddy shoes, whatever. And between the mud room and the house, they have these little concrete barriers, uh, probably four inches wide, three inches tall. Well, I was coming in through there, through the mud room, and I stepped over that barrier into the kitchen, and the linoleum floor was wet. Feet went out from under me. My back came down right across that concrete <sighs> area. And uh, I, I couldn't walk for a Oh, and I've got great stories about New Zealand socialized medicine. That's something we do not want in the United States. <laughs> Having experienced it. And... Uh. It uh, when when I broke my back, I you know I couldn't move. I, I couldn't get up off the floor. And so is that what uh, Andrew come get me? So huh? that's what that's what that's the thing that sent you back to the U.S. was yeah, the broken yeah. back, stop the travels. Yeah. So you so you come back to the U.S., busted up, but a ton now, of knowledge, I had, to, a ton I, had of to, experience. I had to wait several months down there. Okay. To get the point that I could travel in a wheelchair. And uh, then I came back to the States. Only time in my life I've ever bought a first-class ticket and couldn't enjoy it. Had to take pain pills and lay the seat down and couldn't enjoy the free drinks or nothing. Uh, <laughs> it was awful. And, that sounds uh, awful. I came back and uh, I had a friend that most of the archery community might know about, uh, O.L. Adcock. Uh, who lived in or lives in Roswell, New Mexico, and was the only person I knew that had a house with no steps. And uh, so I asked him, you know, can I come stay there till I get lined out and, and see if I can get my back fixed? And uh, I did and uh, got back surgery out in uh, uh, El Paso from a uh, neurosurgeon there. And when I woke up from that first back surgery, I could wiggle my toes and I could lift my feet off the bed. And I knew at that point, I was determined I was gonna be all right. And it worked out, I got to where I could, uh, you know, I could walk again, not well, but I, I could walk. And uh, um, I still had a tremendous amount of back pain. And uh, some other medical problems popped up along the way. But uh, then over here, and after I, I bought this place out here in West Texas, uh, I found a, a neurosurgeon. That, as far as I'm concerned, the guy walks on water. He, he's a wizard. Uh, he went in and uh, operated on my back. And he took out one of the screws and cut about an inch off of one of the steel rods to go up both sides of my spine and did a bunch of other work on my back. And uh, the pain went away, he took my back pain away. But uh, he had to go back later because uh, I developed a syndrome that literally the name of it is chin on chest 
Stockton syndrome. And I couldn't lift my head off my chest. So he had to go back in and he went in from the back of my neck and put uh, wedges between each one of the vertebra. And then he went in through the front of my neck and put in wedges between every vertebra and uh, got me where I can hold my head up and so forth. I have limited mobility though, up and down, left and right uh, with my head, but I have no pain, no back pain whatsoever, no neck pain. And, uh, you know, I, I have to be assisted walking a little bit, but uh, I got so many other medical problems going on. I uh, total, since I hurt my back, I've had 42 surgeries. Oh, my. Holy smokes. So Paul, how's it? They, They've worked on every vertebra in my back, plus a lot of other parts of my body. <laughs> Paul, Paul, I know your back hurt. Now, how, how bad does your back hurt now? It doesn't Pales hurt in comparison. Ed, as soon as we get off this conversation, I'm headed to uh, to a doctor about my back. So, I, uh, oh, I'm if you need <laughs> surgery, man, I got the best back surgery in the world. Well, I'll he tell you, it's no one's cutting on me until after turkey season's done. So I'll grind <laughs> that out. So. <laughs> So for a lot of years. So Ed, we're, we're, we're over, over an hour here and, and uh, man, I, I've enjoyed this talk. So I, 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 I wanted to understand kind of the history of, of you just as an individual and how you started to, you know, go down this path. And, and, and you've definitely answered that. I could listen to you talk for hours. Um, I, I, I do want for hours. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, so, so this one was definitely, I wanted to just, you know, for, for our listeners that a lot of people that may not know you, I wanted to lay the foundation of you as an individual, because that's, that's important and kind of your process. The next conversation that, that I want to have is I want to dive deep, get in the weeds, if you will, about the research and the testing that, that you were doing. And I think that that's going to be that's that I can tell that's what you want to talk about. That's your that's where you shine. And I can't wait to have that conversation. I, I, and I, I hope that you're you're willing to come back on for for another chat. So, oh, certainly anytime. Oh, good. Wonderful. So we'll be hard pressed to put that one in an hour. <laughs> we yeah, we can do we can do we can do as many of these episodes as we can because it's it's a it's a good story and I think it's important. So and if you'd stay on the line, we'll go ahead and and and, and uh, thank everyone for listening. And uh, I think I think this the first episode of the Ed Ashby talks. I want to call these Ed with your approval, the the tales of an old derelict bow hunter. What do you think? That's fine with me. That's I like good. it. I like it. Ed, thank you, sir. Yep, thank you, Ed. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. All right.